And welcome to the Dice is Screaming podcast. Ow! Oh, oh, that was a howl. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's, that's the, right. The dice howl this time. Oh, they howl. How? And whom do they howl for? <laughs> Ask not for whom the dice howl. They howl for thee. Oh. <laughs> and hey, that's it. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. Yeah, we brought back the uh, howl this time. We're gonna. People said uh, to Mike uh, that they kind of missed the scream, so you'll be hearing it a little bit. Yeah, we waited till the fourth anniversary, uh, and the fourth anniversary is passed. We're beginning what will eventually become our our fifth year. Our fifth year. So we're bringing back the the dice scream once again. Ah, indeed. Hey, so welcome, folks, uh, to the show today. We got uh, not a whole lot lined up. Uh, we kind of been busy with Collins and other things, so this is going to get us uh, a lot of time to cover module. D3. Vault as promised. Wrong. It's Gary Gygax Day or post-Gary Gygax Day. Others promise we deliver. Well, uh, well I'm no. just saying the Mikhaomancer was not wrong this time. So no. we still have the Mikhaomancer on the job, divining through, you know, uh, knives and swords. And the Vault of the Drow is totally happening. Minute pick apart. Right. And uh, we're going to cover some good and bad things. So just a content warning. We will be covering some esoteric stuff that may not be suitable for all uh, listeners. So if the descriptions of what the drow entail and other things uh, that happen in the city of Elrin High Sindlu and what happens in Elrin High Sindlu should stay in Elrin High Sindlu. <laughs> but in case uh, that sort of thing upsets you, because we will be talking about diseased beggars, uh, prostitutes, houses of ill repute, poison shops, and torture parlors. Yeah, Open that, slavery. You know, uh, there will be objectionable topics abounding in Errol High Sinlu's description. Uh, we will not be giving these lavish details. Right. This like will not almost, be a salacious you know, overview. We will not be doing fetishized level of, ooh, awesome. Yeah, let's go into the minute details. Yeah, uh, This is not Avenger no. Satanist uh, power hour. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> this, this, the seg that segment will not be written by uh, James Raggy. Oh, oh. So, uh, don't worry about that. Uh, well, but it will... 40 minutes of elf torture porn. Yeah, uh, hard pass. Um, it will, however, brush up against these topics, so be forewarned. And the second yeah. part of the warning would be that this is going to be major spoilers. We're not going to dodge. This is an old, classic, wonderful module, very near the end of the super campaign discussion, uh, which has been ongoing for over a year now. Yeah, we just talked about uh, D1. And two, Descent into the Earth, and we kind of left off with the Cerebellum, so that's where we're going to pick up on this one. But yeah. this is a really good module because it shifts the campaign dynamic, and we're going to talk about that, plus some of our tips. And we're going to do a uh, quick analysis of each one of the sections. There's basically not a whole lot before we get into the main meat of the module. But this is the culmination of what should be months of play. So I hope that you've enjoyed this, and of course, uh, this is going to be... Uh, I think we'll just uh, wrap it up with Q1, and then we'll do a look at the super module, Queen of Spiders, after this, uh, sometime in the future. So that's uh, upcoming episodes that we'll have. Also, just a brief uh, thing here. Um, finally got my notification on when arms and equipment for RuneQuest are going to be, so we'll be covering that. We still haven't been oh, able to get our wonderful. hands on a uh, starter set yet. So once we do, uh, and things clear up on that end, we'll be getting our... <coughs> Starter set, so we'll be doing a review on RuneQuest. So a couple people had asked, like, hey, why aren't you covering RuneQuest as much? Oh, we've been kind of busy. 
So, and also some of the RuneQuest stuff has been hard uh, pressed. We put a quick, uh, see, I just picked up RuneQuest 3, the deluxe edition. Oh, From wonderful. a used bookshelf. Uh, and uh, so we'll be maybe looking that over. Um, so, yeah, the Glorantha and RuneQuest content still going to be coming here. It's just, it's been a little shy lately. And, yeah, I've also been negligent on my Johnstown uh, reading. I've been picking up as many PDFs because I've been busy running uh, a couple new campaigns as well as reviewing some stuff future as well as my Gamma World campaign. So that's been going on. Well, and this coming week, although... You know, you can expect RuneQuest examinations very soon. Uh, this coming week, the Machaomancer predicts, Oh, I gaze into the blades, and I can divine the future from swords or knives. And I see glittering in the future. Ooh. Discussion on the D&D movie, mm-hmm. the upcoming Honor Amongst Thieves. Uh, the trailer has been released. We've both finally seen that. And, I, you know, we will have a kind of twofold discussion on the wonderful inevitability of another D&D movie in this era where D&D has become more popular uh, and more, you know, literally uh, a lot more financially viable in film. Uh, number two, the, you know, obvious uh, strengths of what we've seen so far. And then number three, the potential pitfalls and an open admission that we have seen failure happen in the past. So people have a great deal of caution. Like a lot of a lot of gamers are very gun shy. I'm not giving credence to the people who are immediately going negative on this. Uh, but I am acknowledging that a certain amount of caution that we've been burned before. Okay. Mm. You know, it's uh, once burned, twice shy. And yeah. Oh my, we have been fireballed to the face by that last D&D attempt to move at a movie. Uh, so that will be a little multi-topic examination of the phenom, uh, encompassing both our hopes and our concerns. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> look forward to it. That's next week. We're going to blow that up. All right. Well, I think getting out of all the business out of the way, we're ready yeah. to into this. So let's start out here. Ball to the draw here. Just loves the cover. Uh, it's an, it was one of our trivia questions uh, that just came up here for our 250th episode. And, uh, of course, it was Errol Otis on the cover here. This this cover has uh, gotten some controversy because people, of course, assign the uh, absolute black pallor of the draw as a, sort of a black base. But... Uh, I also will render onto this argument while I am sympathetic to that. I don't think this was necessarily the implication here, but I can definitely understand why people may feel that way. Um, personally, I, if I were given my druthers, I probably would do uh, the dark elves or drow as uh, the shadow elves in Mistra, which were albino elves. Held hidebound underground and uh, pink-eyed. And on the back cover, of course, we have one of the uh, preliminary encounters, uh, preliminary ones as well. You see the uh, male uh, drow vampire, Belagos, and his uh, succubus lover, Salissa. Yeah. Uh, Jeff D. did that back one year. And so this is a little bit more of a salacious cover. Here's well, that yeah, word it's again. got, uh, I believe, Eclavadra there on the yeah. front cover, uh, drawn by Errol Otis, uh, wielding her tentacle wand uh, and uh, one other... Yeah, I, I believe a rod. Yeah, the demon base. rod the, yeah, that she carries. Yeah, so. And, you know, enmeshing a uh, 
player character combatant. Using one of those drow short swords plus four. So yeah, pretty action-packed thing, and uh, for the time, yeah, a little titillating, but it's also um, not anything too shocking. So now, like on the topic, uh, we right. we might as well just like because we have the full hour to work with uh, this time. I feel like we should momentarily examine uh, a core difference between people's perception of uh, like the inappropriateness of the look of the drow. Uh, I'm going to agree with people regarding the later released editions that really had, I, I think they had been informed by Tina Turner and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and they had basically made uh, like the drow art on the cover was you know, yeah, just Queen a of Spiders. black lady with white hair. And I was like, okay, that's, yeah, that is, uh, I, I'm feeling like this is probably a little in the inappropriate zone. Uh, whereas the four and a half foot tall uh, imagination of like Nordic mythos involved like evil under the earth spirits uh, who were literally the obverse of what you would see on the surface. The Alpar versus. Instead of, yeah. you know. The Druor. The Druor with the Dark Elves were. Skin with like no color, which is true black. You know, yeah, and, and also the Gaelic uh, dark fairies. Yeah, so these are, you know, culturally relevant notions that did not come out of a hostile place. Okay, they were like basically a game version acknowledgement of historical mythos uh, that certainly had a legitimate place, uh, at least being cataloged as like a, a part of uh, other cultures. Uh, history and mythos. So I did not take much offense at the early versions of the drow with the solitary exception of, I, I felt a little awkward even like 40 years ago that like, wow, the only matriarchal society in D&D &D, and it's totally evil and murderous. Yeah. I did not take that extremely well. You know, I, I thought that was off the, the base right there. So there were some legitimate misgivings, but overall, uh, given the time and place it came from, this module is still a power-packed wonderland. Uh, and DMs have an enormous amount of influence over how any product they make use of is portrayed. So uh, I don't want to poo-poo it and say, like, if these things bother you, don't use it at all. I, I do per and people have heard me say this exact thing many times before, you know, great DMs don't borrow, they steal, uh, and you have all the power. Edit, edit, edit. Like, you know, season to your taste. Uh, exercise the power and authority that you have as a creative to make use of the parts that you like and edit out the parts you don't. So, yeah. Now, with that all out of the way, we're just going to approach it with that context. We're not trying to pass any judgment on whether you dislike it or like it. I personally, it, it um, because I'm deeply seeped in some Nordic lore, uh, I quickly grasp the concept right away, What, why the black skin. Um, but at the same time, I also start to realize pretty quickly that hindsight, looking back, that may not have been the, a, a good choice for a commercial product. But at the same time, 
that's uh, hindsight well, for you. In mythology, you deal in huge meta concepts yes, that tend to be Correct. dualities. Okay, and in almost every culture, these dualities include light and darkness, uh, sun and moon, uh, fire and water, earth and air. You know the the yes. great perfect opposites. The you know notions that uh, these concepts are then anthropomorphized. Uh, and given exactly, a shape yeah. and a face. That was a lot of the Nordic elves were the transformation yeah. of the perfect opposite of like, oh, here's a guy up on the surface world. Uh, and, you know, what if we just like literally uh, did a funhouse mirror switcheroo, uh, bizarro world opposite version. And boom, there you had, instead of like tall and muscular, you had you know, tiny and slender. Uh, and in, instead of having skin that has color, uh, you know, of various colors, because hey, you know, like even, you know, like Nordic people are not all whiter than white, it's white, mm. okay? Uh, they, they come in all colors, depending on how much time they've spent outdoors. Uh, but here's something that has no color at all, just darkness, uh, and then pure white hair. Uh, Man, you know, when they're telling tales around campfires, like they were not thinking, hey, how do I screw somebody over with this story? It was more like, how do I create the impression in this mythological tale that I am imparting to others that something is alien and opposite, you know, that the obverse side of the coin of life? Yeah, and also the Silvart of the Finnish lore, the black elves who came from underneath the earth to kidnap people and torture them hideously. Yeah, big influence uh, on, on this. this one. So, getting into it right now. So, anyway, yeah, we wanted to cover that real quickly. So, band aids oh. off. So, this one uh, starts right here with a warning. It says this module, as well as all other series, has been designed strictly for use by experienced players with a high level character. It demands a degree of ability which cannot be generally be attained by merely allowing an inexperienced group to adventure with powerful characters. So, they talk about some guidelines about balancing out the power to respect to magic using fighters are very important with at least one thief and two clerks should be along. Uh, the also item, average level of the group should be about 10th and each player should have magic items commensurate with their level of experience. And as always in here, teleportation doesn't work because uh, apparently magic has weather. and Under earth radiation. Yes. And of course, nice little uh, hitch there, but you're so far deep and the eldritch radiations that permeate this, disallow teleportation, except in limited circumstances. You can still teleport a little bit, but you can't get back home and come back again. Yeah, you you really, at this point, you are in the middle of the deep dive. Uh, you are at the bottom of the bed of pearls, so you better grab as much as you can before you return to the surface. Uh, right. Your, your goal <laughs> can only suffer at this Pardon. point... Uh, if you turn around and go back, which, hey, within rights of player characters to do as they see fit, but all the difficulties that they have faced on the way to this point will remain or return, replaced by other things of the DM's choice. Like if you if you literally butchered your way through the Kautoans and they decide, well, we're going back to the surface to resupply, what's moving in there after... You've left that space open. Oh, yeah. They may be reinforced and very hostile. Oh, yeah. So the uh, premise is, is that you've been tracking at Clavadra from the Hall of the Fire Giant King all the way down. And 
Overcoming were rats and mine players, drought patrols, and their minions, you've managed to cross the vast subterranean river in the face of a mad fishman, a quotone of exceptional abilities and strengths, and after days of journeying through quarters hewn from living rock, discovered an underground temple of the Koatoan fishmen were an idol of the repulsive goddess. Blubdu Pulup. Yes, as I said it. <clears throat> to be venerated by all who would pass through. And all along the route, signs of the insidious drow. The Dark Elves have been noted. It is evident that the Dark Elves pass freely throughout the underworld, but just as evident as those evil elves are hated and feared by the other intelligent races inhabiting the subterranean lands, does not give cause to hope that your party will receive any substantial aid. For the most creatures dwelling in the sunless places beneath the earth are as evil as the drow. But there are the deep gnomes, and that's where play starts right here. L in L2 41 42 on the master map, which is just a hex crawl with lots of areas. And so we're just going to talk about the random monster passages here. Here's a few of them that are going through here. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, the deep gnomes become, yeah, in your respects, out. the only bolt hole of genuine safety and secure that the players can hope to find. So, yeah, we had covered uh, them. Smart players will make use of that. We had covered them. And this is a DM tip here. To help the players along, um, I made it uh, very clear that some of the survival had been taken captive by the drow over a period of time. And they would be interested if the, they learned that the party's headed to the vault of the drow, although they would try to talk them out of it. Yeah, if you free, uh, like if you encounter a merchant caravan of drow with captives uh, and slaves, and you free, and amongst them happens to be a deep gnome, you got your in. Okay, that's your moment yeah. for the player characters to have positive contact with a under-earth race. Yeah, and so you've already made contact with them. These guys are just, I would, as I put in there, it's kind of a side quest of putting the uh, Cerebellum in as uh, asking the players, hey, be on the lookout for any deep ones you find. As a kind of rescue <laughs> five deep ones. Be on the lookout. Bolo, bolo. So yeah, the you know, encounters on there are divided into three groups. There's the primary passages, the secondary passages, and tertiary passages. And the tertiary patches uh, can be some of the most hair-raising ones with, uh, you know, a number of demons as well as, uh, you know, you can always find drow merchant trains on these. So uh, as a DM, I would also uh, prep by designing there's several tables to uh, how to design and set up merchant caravans before the players encounter them, just so you're prepared so you don't have to take some time out. Yeah, having one pre-prepared uh, with, like, having made use of the potential randomizations that are listed in here. Uh, and if you really want to stay true to it, uh, prepare three different cards with three different caravans. Yeah, there's and, various sizes. Yeah, like then shuffle them. Like So you don't know which card you're going to get for random caravan. You've fulfilled the random element, uh, but you have pre-prepared material that will speed your introduction of the player characters into either conflict with or momentary uh, interaction. So, uh, of the three types of passages, the tertiary, Randy's got it right. Uh, these are extremely dangerous in the sense that, although you may encounter traveling drow uh, being sneaky or like taking a back passage, there are much wilder things in the dark than yeah. the drow. Yeah, and they are uh, mostly the tertiary passage you're going to cover are mostly pack bearers, uh, bugbears and slaves being carrying the drow's goods, where in the main passages, Big you're going to have lizards and uh, much larger uh, 
numbers of drow there. So, uh, so let's look here in the tertiary passage. One of the ones that always kind of like made me uh, cringe was uh, the one to four shambling mounds. <laughs> okay, one's kind of bad, but four. Well, hey, you know, me... a rotting mushroom, uh, a cavern full of rotting mushrooms, and four shambling mounds in one. That could be kind of. It's a tough encounter, it but is. not beyond a group of 10th level players, especially if, uh, let's <clears throat> momentarily, uh, again, a flashback moment for antique vintage play. Uh, it was very routine for small groups of players to have hirelings. Uh, so if you had your like 10th to 14th level group of players. Uh, yeah, with, you would have hirelings and henchmen. With like a. Uh, the more complicated classes being 10th or 11th level and the simpler classes like Rogue being closer to 14th, you know, uh, depending on the XP arrangement. And then a few multi-class characters, but each of them had, you know, like their squad, like, you know, few henchmen here, few henchmen there. So it was equally possible that the players would be traveling with what would constitute quite a large band. Uh, this meant that if these encounters seemed to you like they might be a little amped up, uh, it was not meant to be four players versus all of this. Uh, it was expected. Well, yeah, but Shambling Mountains with their large amount of immunities and rege high regenerative qualities mm -hmm. and almost nigh immunity to fire. And, and let's not and even, talk, don't like, even talk about what happens with electricity. Yeah, I'll let you find that on here. <laughs> so yeah, there's a couple good ones here. Um, one to two umber hogs, or two to five gas with four to sixteen ghouls. That could be kind of problematic, but with yeah. a cleric overcome. Purple worm, uh, giant slug, lurker purple, above. Purple like, worm is no joke. Oh yeah. Well, okay. I mean, yeah. Although the the name itself lends itself to humor uh, of the juvenile variety, uh, the encounter itself was horrifying. Uh, it's like a creature that does so much damage. The swallow hole ability. Yeah, the sting. Like I have been in that unenviable position as a player character where uh, my fighter has been swallowed whole a number of times. And so I did not look forward to any of those encounters because I tended to use two-handed weapons um, and be in the front rank of the party. So you're like, if anybody in the party was going to be devoured entirely then it was going to be me. <laughs> so, uh, the only reason my character ever carried knives or daggers was to cut my way out of the insides of creatures more than once. So, yeah. That, but you can see the encounter lists here. Yeah, like uh, 11, 16 bugbears with two trolls and 11, 16 troglodytes, four gas, seven to 12 ghouls. Um, there's also a key here indicating the allegiances of the various types of creatures. Who are they likely to work for? Who would survivors report to? Who would notice that they had gone missing? Uh, to give you an inkling of the drowse level of organization uh, and the enmity of various... Uh, yeah, the, the fighting societies, the uh, merchant clans, and the noble houses. There's all these little brooches you're finding as you encounter. Yeah, and that's how the drow mark their allies and also recognize their enemies, even if these are, uh, how do I put this? Not, not frenemies per se, okay? It's more like rivals, uh, yeah. where these are political, they may be at political odds with one another, and presentation or visibility of the wrong badge can trigger a bad reaction. And the players, being outsiders, 
do not have this information. The dungeon master, on the other hand, does. So where you choose to place these and how you, you know, whether you choose to randomly generate what band of drow is allied to, like they're wearing the crystal prism that's vaguely uh, blue, and you know you're wearing a orange you know, thing that, you know, clearly these guys don't like. Yeah. Right, and so as and a, they a, don't so say we don't like your orange thing. They they will mention like a house name and that you're scum. You know, that's the only clue characters will be picking up encounter by encounter. As a side note, as a DM, I would also allow thieves to use their read languages ability to start to discern some type of allegiance between these. In the same way that many thieves would be familiar with the ongoings of merchant guilds or various organizations on the surface world. They might be able to turn it around if the players are having a hard time. But that's just kind of a little slip in the slide there. Yeah, to so, give them a means by which to learn more. Right. You know, to use Thieves Can't slash read languages skill to try to pick up on those hidden cues that exist between merchant clans. So you come across the first one here is a, uh, a drow outpost. And uh, this is pretty much all male drow. It's one of the fighting societies of the male drow. And so... That's one that's encountered here. It's pretty well uh, put out. Elf uh, fighter magic user pretty much uh, get through here. It's some good loot in that one. And then uh, we go to the other encounter here, which is encounter area R247, which, yeah, that uh, little... Belgor and Silosa. Yeah, the, on the best. Cubus and the vampire living together in sin. Yeah, but living their best lives, so... Yeah, yeah, they're being their best Yeah, self. she's just kind of posing there as a... Seemingly a statue of a beautiful woman in the middle of this uh, almost fae-like grove being attended by glittering bats running around her. And, of course, she'll beckon the players forward. Yeah, the statue starts talking. Yeah, and she'll, uh, at first what she sees is a striking pose. Then she will be pretending to be some goddess and then start uh, using her psionics and charm powers to start messing with them. As Bella goes, summons a swarm of bats and then gets ready to transform back into full humanoid form and go full ham on a party that's uh, confused by Blatt's half uh, charmed and he's going right for the cleric. Yeah, because let's remember uh, smart DMs use monsters like they're smart and obviously those charms, it's tougher to execute this stuff against a high level party, but it should be targeted at the villain. Oh, that looks like your stupid fighter type. Bam! Yeah, she won't go for the cleric or magic user. She's going to go for the guy yeah. wielding the swords or carrying the shields. Yes, Lunk the Fighter. Ooh, I want to help the pretty lady. Uh, so that... Come closer and kiss me, you handsome lug. <laughs> well, now, the illustration inside this book, I gotta say, uh, they, they have, like, a, two characters uh, looking aghast and in horror as... She uh, reveals her demonic power. Yeah, the beautiful succubus makes use of her, you know, demonic power and reveals her, you know, winged form. Uh, and they're terrified, which, <laughs> oh man, you know, the PCs in that picture look far more terrified than the average teenage boy who first opened the pages of this module. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that's a good one to the, ring up. There was a visible breast there. Uh, just saying. Oh, so yeah, here we got uh, also one of the things that was controversial at the time is uh, Belagos was so in love with uh, Salissa that any cleric that brings a holy symbol up, he will strike aside, thwarting the attempt to turn him or her, and he will then cause, this action causes him 2 to 12 damage. And they're like, well, 
why can't every vampire do that? Well, Belagos is a little bit different. And obviously, uh, they were implying here that their love wasn't just a nature of just coexistence, but one of they were living in a state of decadence and sin that could not be easily described by those who did not share it. Yeah. Both vampiric creatures enjoying a sunless existence in a gloomy fairy land of their own devising. Yeah. Yeah. Using their immense power uh, to craft a place where they can be truly happy. They're, they're content. Uh, so yeah, your disruption of that contentness is your loss. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You will. Ruin. They love fresh victims. Yeah. And in there to, to heighten it is a poor gnome uh, from Neblin who's down to only 10 hit points because of the constant tapping of blood. Yep. They've been making use of, of you know, whatever, uh, well, you know, he's just another in a long line of like blood cattle that have no. been made use of, or level cattle, uh, in the case of the Zacubus. Who wants a kiss? Mm. <laughs> Least popular attraction in Zapir is the Zacubus kissing booth. Yeah. Uh, everybody lines up for it, but they stagger away. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to get back into this and wrap it up. So stick around. All right, and we're back after the break. So thanks, Hans, for sticking around. Yeah, we just got done describing uh, honor, uh, the Succubus Vampire Encounter. And so, yeah, a little bit of going on there, but also, man, what treasure. Just good stuff, easily portable. Oh. But Mike was bringing up a good point. About this time, a lot of encumbrance values, if you can keep in track of that, should be starting to get capped out. Yeah, the, even the readiest of parties with abundant uh, pack animals and things like that, uh, may find their containers being a little overfilled. Now, if they have opportunistically preyed upon uh, drow caravans and acquired additional pack animals, it's not that the rudimentary tools aren't there to continue packing up this treasure. But if they're just like six players and uh, like a dozen henchmen hoofing it through this place with maybe a couple of pack animals, you're rapidly going to find every single available container in the party, up to and including portable holes and bags of holding, packed full. Uh, and huh, there is a lot of treasure to be had. This module is no exception to the series, uh, where you will find yourself fighting organized bands, tribes, things like that, uh, bugbears, troglodytes, you know, uh, various under-earth creatures, the Kautoans, uh, and previously the fire giants, frost giants, and hill giants, they had some substantive loot. And after the fire giants, uh, it is theoretically possible that like the players make the descent into the underearth immediately, at which point they lose the ability to bolt hole and safely stow away all of their loot. And it is during this module that you hit this culmination where uh, the accumulated treasure that they have gathered becomes almost an imposition of its own. Yeah, they have to start discarding coinage for jewelry and gems. And fortunately, there's quite an abundance. So you're pretty much trading out equal for more pack space. But Yeah, you might have lost. You're like, ah, well, we're down to throwing out the Electrum. We already got rid of the copper and silver like five encounters ago. Yeah. We're throwing out the Electrum to make room for, ooh, a jewelry. 10,000 gold piece bracelet. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you can imagine, these are like 
you know, crown jewel museum pieces that the players are encountering as standard treasure at this point. Yeah, so this brings us to one of the least used encounters. I've only run this a couple times, but uh, tucked in the corner way off on the side here is a little side encounter, which you have to go through a secondary and tertiary encounter or passageway to get to. But uh, there's a network of webbing which covers the whole place, and in there are seven giant black widow spiders, which, you know, a pretty nasty encounter, but not um, anything that's going to push the party. But as they venture in deeper, the tunnel spurs off and a monster of unusual size with six hit dice and an armor class of zero with very brilliant venom will rush out. And after presumably uh, she bites and kills a few people. Uh, she, um, yeah, uh, you uh, violate her abode. They find a golden idol made in the likeness of Loth. And of course, set in there are many six gems and two drow eyes made of black sapphires. And these are very worthwhile but as soon as you touch the statue it imparts unto you knowledge how to use it that will cause fear showing it to all giant and large and huge spiders an ability to command their evasions for of several rounds as well as the ability to send the equivalent of a web spell from the spinnerets in the abdomen of the idol uh basically party stringing everybody 40 <laughs> feet away with a web spell and uh Unfortunately, the DM then has to make a saving throw for the player at minus two. And the player then becomes overwhelmed with the conviction that he or she alone can withstand the danger of this idol. I alone can control this. Have faith in me. The rest of you will only be taken advantage of. The cruel nature of this thing will exploit your, your uh, mental weakness, and it will transform you into its servant. Therefore, I must protect you from it. Yeah, and over a period of time, then the DM starts keeping track. And, of course, uh, the player can mask their uh, abilities under the guise of altruism. No, I'm using this for most power of good. Sound familiar, anyone? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, after about the 66th day of possession. Oh, uh, well, after the 6th and ending with the 66th, uh, it becomes, like, a, in a non-stoppable progression. Like, if, if you drop this thing before day 6, you're off the hook. If they, if they separate yep. the player from it, you go to day seven through day 66, you're stuck. This is a slow conversion into Spider Beast. Yeah, you become a giant spider and obsess over it. So. <laughs> spider fighter, spider fighter. can do anything a spider fighter can. Now, finally, uh, this will bring us to the end uh, part here. And this is where I want to talk about a shift in the adventure. So, so far, it's been pretty much exploration and conquest. Everything you fight is pretty much an enemy. There's been a few role-playing encounters, obviously, the Koatoan and Sunevelin, as well as Thupshib. And Have perhaps you... an occasional drow caravan. Yeah. At best, if you were very fortunate to meet them on the right odds where they were willing to negotiate and trade, you might be able to trade up for some gems and stuff along the way. It's true. Yeah, you can consolidate some of that cash purchasing goods off of them. Uh, if you're looking for a creative way, the <laughs> the smarter rogues in your party may say, hey, why don't we use the bulky heavy-to-carry change to buy fabulous trinkets off of these draw merchants? Like, have you got any gems for sale? Love a big pouch full of gems. Uh, and I, it, behold, I just happen to have like 22,000 silver pieces we've, we've been stuck with for like the last uh, two weeks. So that, that would be awesome if I could just unload all this silver on you. <laughs> yes, that can be done. 
And believe me, this is the Mike plays a rogue version of how that goes. Because I screw like the penny pinchingest, like I'll pinch that silver piece until the king on it burps. <laughs> Goodness gracious! All right, so yeah, you had a couple of role playing encounters and some opportunities here and there, but you, this is where the dynamic shifts. Now you finally got to your end of your destination. You're here at the vault of the drum. You finally arrived. But now you're not going to go in here, guns blazing or swords swinging and uh, fireballs. Swinging. Oh, no. No, here is where that becomes a statistical impossibility. And if your party is unready for that emotionally, if they have not absorbed some degree of warning that they're going to have to play well with others, even bad others, this is where that will bite them in the butt. Because here you have the beginning of what is the drow's fortress mode, the, the areas from which they project their power throughout the Underdark. And, okay, you can go in guns blazing if you wish, like get in close, uh, like flag a parley, hey, we're, we're just here to say hi and you know, like pass on through and sell some stuff and then start blowing stuff up. But once you burn that bridge, there is no going back. That any responsible DM worth their salt will literally harangue the players with like attacking regiments of drow at that point. Right. And so now finally the party makes their way into this underground cavern with a huge mesa and then a bluff on top with an ancient worn black tower. Just the name, the black tower. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you've you've already like by this point passed through the bugbear strongholds, which uh, where they they troglodyte caves and the, the troglodyte caves, and this is where the servants, the most routine servants and patrol guards of the Drow come from. But this this is Drow Fort, Fortress Central. Yeah. So as you go in here, I'm just going to read this. Uh... When the adventurers at last leave the passageway and enter the vault of the Drow, a strange sight will greet them. They will be able to say clearly at 240 yards and dimly out to 480 if they wear the weird cinnabar eye cusp that's been kind of salted around here. Now, yeah, the corpses of some of the fallen creatures uh, that they've encountered uh, in various places will have had these weird lenses uh, that are in the eyes. And you would normally think that, like, wait, these are, uh, you know, like magical implements. You yeah, know, you're, like you're thinking of eyes of the eagle or something like that. No. These are just like contact lenses for the Underdark. Yeah, so if you put these in, they can see out to 80 yards, clearly, with hazy sight that doubles that range. But even normal human light now no longer requires any magical lighting or uh, torchlight. They can see out there at least 80 yards. And they see this huge gorge, and the true splendor of the vault can only be appreciated by those with intervision or with the roseate lenses or gemacine. The vault is a strange anomaly, a hemispherical cyst in the crust of the earth, an incredibly huge dome vault of over six miles long and nearly as broad. The dome overhead is 100 feet high at the walls, arching several thousand feet in height at the center. When properly viewed, the radiation from certain unique minerals gives the visual effect of a starry heaven, while the zenith of this black stone bowl is a huge mass of tukiumite, which is in slow decay, so radioactive element, and the transformation to lassophyte sheds a lurid gleam, a Ghostly, plum-colored light to human eyes, but with intervision, a wholly different sight. And the small star nodes of crystalline 
uranium deposits, leucite, is also visible. So the strange radiations underneath the drow have imbued them with the, the, this is the big excuse that they need to be bathed in the light of the place of their making to retain their mighty enchantments. So radioactive drow weapons. So. Yeah, but anyway, getting to the Black Tower, all the paths lead straight up to it. There's a nice illustration there in the page. All bio. roads lead to the Black Tower. Yeah, and you have all traffic is funneled through here. So now they have to go under the scrutiny of the female fighting sisterhood. And there's if they're no, if keen players are noticing, some of them will be wearing various brooches of noble houses. And if they're wearing one that's in uh, line opposite to that, that will immediately attract scrutiny. Also, paladins and lawful good clerics will begin uh, basically standing out like a bright light to these folk who don't usually see lawful good holy symbols or symbols uh, heraldry on their weapons and devices. Yeah, at least like if the players have been using their brains so far, it will have occurred to them that they will have to disguise their most powerfully good members. Uh, at this point, obscure alignment uh, is a useful treat, yeah, like the opposite one. of uh, no alignment mask. Or a non-detection spell from illusionist. Or... Correct. There are several techniques to overcome this. Uh, so having those at the ready would have been a smart call. However, I've always been of the stance that if the players did not bother to give that any kind of discussion, like if they're working out like disguises to get into the city, oh, we're going to pose as merchants. And the paladin will just like, yeah, try to act less nice. Yeah. <laughs> just like scowl a lot. That'll totally fool. <laughs> Not going to be enough. You know? Yeah, you're going to have to think your way through. And as a DM, don't pull any punches. They're high level. They should have known going into the mouth of the beast to beard Eclavadra and her lair would in somehow entail them having to sneak past some guards. Oh, we'll just bite everybody in our way. Well, that's going to get you a quick death because, yeah, you might be able to overcome the guardians here. There's a, a finite number of them. They're pretty tough. But uh, General Tilena, I'm just going to go over this one. I, I was going to say one terrific pose people could use that is just a classic is to have the neutral character have the like backstory of the lawful good character being sworn into their service. Or charmed <laughs> as a magic user. Yeah. You know, that this is a person who they may be lawful good, but they owe me. We have a contract, and they will not break it. Uh, they obey my orders, and they are nothing for you to concern yourself with. Uh, you know, having someone who is believably neutral uh, put that forward can buy, like, at least one good character out of the way. So, yeah, General Talena here has uh, 63 hit points, plus three buckler, plus five elven chainmail, plus four decks for her 18 dexterity with an overall AC of negative eight. And a plus five short sword with a ring of regeneration. And <laughs> she is backed up by her Lieutenant General Drissanil, and she's also an eighth level fighter who also has an armor class of negative seven and 56 hit points with uh, a plus four short sword. So they're just going to go full ham on you with th the rest of them. So these are also with uh, backed up by numerous uh, uh, drow fighters, but they are very well stocked with a scroll of protection of magic and. Uh, two potions of invulnerabilities that they can quaff if they're really uh, have some time, if the players are fighting through their minions first. Exactly. And the point of this, it, like it's a clear indicator that these treasures were not placed there for the players to easily gain access to. These treasures, on the other hand, were placed to give the DM tools 
to put in the hands of dangerous, thoughtful, intelligent opponents that if the players decide to go all combat crazy and fight their way through here, there will be terrifying consequences that like this will be an exceedingly difficult fight with a nearly, you know, overwhelming uh, supply of drow, both of the archer variety with poison crossbow bolts. And look, look, your players may have terrific armor classes and great saving throws. Uh, they may have curatives at the ready. But if you get, you know, like pelted with uh, 20 or 30 particular bolt attacks per round, like each round, like the guys on the sidelines, you've got two or three people fighting every physical member of the party in close combat, and then people around the outskirts just pelting the daylights out of them with, like, hand crossbow And atlatls, they're carrying poisoned atlatls as well. Every single one of them is a saving throw. Like, so, yeah, okay, out of those 20, maybe only one or two is going to hit in a round. But that's one or two saving throws every single round of combat, and if even one goes wrong, you've got a paralyzed character. Uh, So... (laughs) It is just not advisable. Yeah. Yeah. So strongly discourage. So you find uh, there is a, a couple other uh, things in there that I'd like to mention is that the black tower itself has no edges. Time has worn it completely smooth, which gives sort of the antiquity of how long this has been here. And maybe the draw were not the first ones here. Yeah. There's a little nod to, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, almost Cthuloid mythos and things like that, you know. Yeah, so getting into Elrin High Sindel. Now, this is where our content warning was going. Uh, going in here, there's a couple of nice encounters getting up there. You might actually meet a uh, friendly member if you're wearing a uh, the right uh, badge of a drow noble out on a hunting expedition, and she may actually aid you if you have the right brooch. Yeah, having a party with mixed brooches, not a hot idea. Right, but if one, you know, if you're wearing the right one, introduce yourselves to her. Uh, she will take a, a, a liking to you. And props can be a guide. So that's another thing. But, uh, of course, that's all random chance because players will not know this, but the DM does. Now, uh, you're getting up to the strange and often disturbing buildings of Elrin High Sindalu, a wag halter of, which is made to confuse any not bred to the place, crooked, narrow streets and alleys, dimly illuminated by signs scribed in phosphorescent chemicals, and occasional lichen growths or fire beetle cages. Not even the drow are certain what horrors lurk in the sewers beneath. They don't even go there. And the rooftops are home to many sorts of large, huge, and giant spiders and gargoyles. So the main ways of this ancient and depraved city are thronged as unlikely a mixture of creatures that can be imagined. Green cloaked illicits, coatoans rub shoulders with dark elves, ghasts and ghouls roam freely, and an occasional shadow or vampire can be seen lurking. Bugbears and troglites are common, and as are other various servants and slaves of the drow. Uh, none are disturbed to see a lesser demon or succubus, a night hagger, a mesoloth demon. The crowds part hurriedly for noble draw riding nightmares and the more powerful demons and nika demons. So all you write, all you lawful good characters who attack demons on sight, well, go for it. There's about nine to 8,000 draw living in the city and double that number of half-caste servants and slaves. So this is a terrible place to go. Uh, the merchant clans and noble houses bring out the best and the rest are left to wallow in the sinkhole of absolute depravity that is over in High Sindhu. Yeah, this is a place with like, you know, more than 30,000 people in it. And not all of them are on board. Uh, the the half-caste thing, uh, because of the rigid nature of drow hierarchy for an evil society, this means there's some cracks in the armor. There are a lot of people who are not getting a great deal out of this. 
their only hope for advancement is to be you know, monumentally self-interested. And there is wiggle room on the streets of Errol High Sinlu. For yeah, so now the players have gotten here. Now what do they do? Well, they can wander around and look at the sites. Uh, maybe this is a place where you can trade. Trade is freely here. And of course, yeah. as in visitors, you were given this lime green cloak that glows resplendently to the drow site. Yeah, they will recognize you as outsiders. You just stick out, and if you're found, you're warned. If you are found without that cloak, you are subject to arrest or death. Yeah, they don't have to explain themselves. Like you just <laughs> no blue citizens in the green zone. Right. So you, the players might learn after a time and staying at one of the inns that there's uh, the nobles live across the river, and so how to get there. Well, um, during this time, the players might actually, if they show a little bit of kindness here and there, come to the attention of the rakes, and I'll let Mike take it from here. Yeah, this is the crack in the armor I was talking about, that this is a divided society that, like, clearly the upper hand is in the, the hands of those of, uh, you know, old drow blood, uh, no... Nobles you know, and merchants. Yeah, the noble and merchant houses have almost absolute power. And, of course, the worship of law is the law of the land. However, it's sort of an acknowledged truth in Eralai Sinlu that there are other people with other interests. But as long as they're all obedient to that primary order, it is not a great concern to deal with them at this time. Now, amongst those people who have short shrift are the rakes and thieves of this you know, like city. The thieves, well, I probably wouldn't trust them if I were you. The rakes, on the other hand, a positive reaction can be had. Yeah, they're chaotic good. They actually respond to good actions that the players may show. Well, and they're not all chaotic good. but Chaotic I mean, neutral, chaotic good, but they yeah, respond well. To exactly. They're outcasts. They're half drow, uh, you know, in some cases half orcs, uh, you know, but they're, they're people who are on the bottom rung tier. Uh, the best they can ever, ever hope for is some kind of gig working for a house, uh, but as rakes, I mean, they're rake hellions. They're out there. Yeah. Like, all right, we got to find a gig, make just enough money to like get a room and a, a cup of beer and like a meal. And they're, they're out doing whatever they have to do in a city that is immensely hostile. Uh, so uh, this rift allows the player characters one window. Uh, instead of ingratiating themselves to a noble house, uh, and having to do that subterfuge, the one of the only other options they have is to fall in with the rakes, in which case they will have assistance, uh, you know, like fighting back up, you know, like, wait, there's something in this for us? Like, we're going to make a fortune and screw over the jerks who make us live like scum? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, like, literally, you had me at hello. Yeah, the bands of them are mostly drow, drow elves, and half drow, human cross, or... With some sixty percent um, of the latter uh, half half orc and drow, and they are uh, mostly thieves and fighter thieves and thief uh, fighter assassins. So yeah, a good group, but they are not wholly evil nor depraved, and they are looking for a way to strike back. So the they could definitely this is the uh, breadcrumb that's seated in here. The players make contact with them; they can get them across the pitchy flow, as they know many of the ways, and can explain the drow society. And finally bring them to bear uh, with Enclavadra, put an end to her, and then get into the Great Pain of Loth. Now, at this point, getting in the Great Pain of Loth is not going to be allowed. No non-drow are allowed in there, so it's a fight. Yeah, this is where you finally fight, if because you... 
there is no other means by which to achieve ingress uh, without like total subterfuge. I mean, you could get midway into the place uh, attempting to secret yourselves with a great deal of powerful magic, uh, but you better be burning the good stuff. Oh yeah, this is where you've been saving it. I'll break it out because Eclavadra can be brung to bear fairly easily with the help of the rakes and paying them off, you can make your way to the Fane where the rakes will nominally have probably told the party, and as a DM, you should probably emphasize this quite a bit, that that is where the true power that keeps the society in check lurking. So if the players are really daring and they finished off at Clavadra, they can make their way to the Fane, but it's not required. Should they go there, this is going to be a fight of the, the ages because just besides the clerics, and they are all high level and very powerful, 14th and 16th levels. Of, yeah. Of clerics are here. With and, commensurate spell lists. Yeah, with assistants with that are no slouches. And then there's Eklava, uh, excuse me, Loth herself. Yeah, welcome to Loth material plane version. Okay, this is not to be uh, confused with Loth within her demiplane. This is her physical manifestation in the mortal world. Uh, so, you know, like this fight does not guarantee that you have won. And that that's something that should you somehow manage to accomplish that, uh, stress to the player characters that you know, like Loth has retreated to her demiplane. Uh, yeah, she's got a negative 10 armor class, 66 hit points, and as a demigod moves first, saves three for everything. She does have a weak point that has a negative two. Uh, that is for the DM to, you know, like conceal for themselves and determine the location of hits and if the player's descriptions describe that like you you know if they're specifically hunting for a weak spot yes let them make use yeah. of that if they are not specifically hunting you have no obligation to hand them that information and it's negative 10 across yeah the we're board. not going to give it away here but smart players will figure it out themselves. yeah so not only at that point after setting fire to everything and killing their <laughs> goddess sending her back sulking to her demi-plane the egg of Loth is yours. Yeah, you take it and you re uh, out you go. And uh, there's a small wharf cavern with maintaining a secret base that goes out to the pitchy flow, the Savaryet, and carries you out to the sunless sea. And moored at a stone jetty are two small galleys about 40 feet long with demon figureheads. And they are crewed by six guests and 66 ghouls each. Uh, so they serve as guards and crew, which normally they would serve the drow clerics. But uh, for the players, they probably, at this point, for most high-level clerics, they're just going to automatically destroy them or turn them. So goodbye. And uh, But however, protecting each vessel with support lookout is the demonic figurehead of a type 5 demon, and, or a type 4, excuse me. So it comes to life, and then you have to battle it. But you got your way out, and you're on. If uh, you're smart enough and they can have learned the Dark Elven language and lost name, they can command the demon figurehead to carry them across. So there you go. Vault uh, yeah, of the Drow ends, and it says, this ends the descent into the depths, but begins many new and exciting prospects. So yeah, um, this uh, module ends up here, but it continues on, because as you get to the surface, we'll cover that in the surface module, how they uh, patch it together. Yeah, the, the return to safety, the opportunity to unload all their gear, and then the inevitable necessity, if they choose. I mean, they've, they've broken up the drow's uh, situation badly enough that they're no longer uh, like a major threat to the surface world. Okay, you've accomplished that, but the greater enemy, Lolf, 
still remains. Yeah. Return to her demiplane. She will rise again, unless you go there in person and extinguish her once and for all. Ooh. So, yeah. Yeah. Depends on where they want to go with it. If they decide to go for the big finale, which, man, Q1 is going to be an interesting description. Look, that, that'll probably come up in a month or two. Uh, we'll do the big round out on this series. But... Yeah, I'm thinking aiming around end of September, early October. Oh, big thrills, big chills. This is why this is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, because there's so much that hamstrings the players. You have to think. This yeah, is you're not... very powerful singly, but you're facing massive numbers. And yeah. the odds are stacked against you. You can't just resort to just flinging fireballs and swinging your blade around. You've got to sink your way through this. And you've got to be able to deal and react a be agile both in your uh, expectations and your objectives. In multiple playthroughs, I have gone through this in very radically different versions. Okay. And one version making alliances with the rakes out in the street and, you know, like getting a little gang of people together to help shelter us temporarily and then make a strike right for the fane and head for the egg of Loth. That. And then, of course, the subterfuge of working our way into one of the noble houses, uh, ingratiating ourselves into drow society as guests, merchants with great wealth, or just dispensing treasure at that point, like handing over gorgeous gifts and things like that to ingratiate ourselves and move mm -hmm. ourselves socially. Meanwhile, waiting for our window period, like, oh, can we arrange a meeting with so-and-so? Or we've acquired information about who's an enemy of who, and here's our opportunity to break into the fane and go for the egg. We've done it a multiple different ways over. Also, Eclabadra get, finally getting revenge on her. Yeah, after all the crap she's put the party through, House Isle Serves had this coming. Like <laughs> yeah, that has been like a major block. Like, there will be blood. Yeah, it, like all of Drow society is looking for us as we flee toward the Fane because we just torched House Isle Serves. Uh, that happened too. Well, yeah, they were like, oh, some Drow were like, well, finally somebody did away with those jerks. Yeah, nobody was like, they, they do not appreciate this much chaos in their city or the total destruction of a double house, but they're kind of going, couldn't have happened to a nicer person. <laughs> <laughs> well, your enemy is not necessarily my friend. But, so this is a this is a classic module. It's best played, I think, with the first edition or other classic rules. Yes, you can do this with basic uh, or the basic expert set. It's it's been done. Um, however, just have fun with the the adventure and uh, let it take you to the dark realm of the drow, and you will make a memorable moment that your gaming group will never forget. It's one of our favorites, and we're glad we got to share it with you guys. Likewise, yes. classic module, well-deserved the coverage. And I'm so glad we got to do this in more minute detail. Right. Totally deserves it. And Q1 will get the same treatment. All right, then. I think that wraps it up for us. So we're going to cast off and bid you adieu. So until next time, may, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>